Bada bing, bada boom. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Chief Talk. My name is Jeff Capolo. I'm an assistant professor of government here at William & Mary, and I'm joined, as always, by my esteemed colleague, Marcus Holmes. Hey, Marcus, how's it going? Hello, Jeffrey. Marcus, I had a, a special event for my international security class last week. We, uh, we had a visit from Robert Gates, who is uh, William & Mary's 24th chancellor, and um, maybe more importantly for the purposes of this podcast, a former CIA director, former Secretary of Defense, under uh, uh, George W. Bush and then in the first Obama administration, first Obama term. And um, he joined my class to kind of just chat with students and, and answer questions that people had. It was really a, a nice hour that he spent with us. And um, he made some, I thought, interesting points. And I, I thought I would try to get maybe get your take on um, one of the major themes of his comments and actually of some stuff that he's written since uh, leaving office. He has spoken a lot about the increasing militarization of U.S. foreign policy over the years and uh, the extent to which the center of gravity in U.S. international policymaking has shifted to the Defense Department, to military solutions to problems, away from kind of traditional American strengths in diplomacy and international development and foreign aid. And he used the example with uh, the students of Afghanistan and how U.S. personnel on the ground in Afghanistan were dominated by military personnel and that there were kind of very few diplomats outside of the embassy in Kabul, right? That, that elsewhere in Afghanistan, it was the presence was nearly all U.S. military and possibly intelligence, although he didn't talk about that aspect of it. He mentioned how at the end of the Cold War, the U.S., folded the U.S. Information Agency, the uh, public diplomacy arm of, of the, uh, U.S. foreign policy into the State Department, where it is now kind of seen as having lesser importance than it did before when it was kind of its own thing. Similarly, USAID uh, used to have many, many more people than it does now doing work on the ground themselves. And now it's mostly a contracting agency. We're basically passing money to others who are doing the actual uh, international development abroad. And he pointed to this as one way in which the U.S. has kind of ceded ground to China in terms of, I don't know, winning friends, influencing others in the world. I don't know if friends is the right word here, but just in terms of the overall global influence, the fact that the U.S. foreign policy is dominated by this kind of military side, this defense side, maybe makes it harder for us to act in certain ways in the international sphere. And I thought, you know, this touched on some of the stuff that, you, that you're interested in, in terms of the importance of diplomacy in the world and, and um, you know, how U.S. foreign policy is prosecuted generally. I thought it would be nice, nice to have your take on this. So just as a, right off the bat, it's one of the striking things um, that I have found in listening to policy officials and increasingly uh, former policy officials is how often you hear very similar uh, refrains, particularly when, when uh, people are out of office or they retire, right? So I think one of, one of the interesting things that happens um, in the policymaking realm, I mean, and, and again, this is, this is from the sort of outside scholar looking in and, and talking to people, is that there's a, a realization almost too late oftentimes that diplomacy 
should be a bigger part of the, the toolkit. I mean, I, I have I have encountered this over and over and over again. These you know ex policy officials, retired officials, making the claim that we need more diplomacy, we need more diplomacy, we need more diplomacy. And the interesting part is that these arguments are are less often made in the rooms in which they matter at the time uh, when it would have been actually useful to be making these arguments. And I'm not making a claim about Robert Gates, uh, although I, I, I will point out that in during the Cold War he was part of a group uh, that when we were reaching out to the Soviet Union in the 1980s, was, was somewhat skeptical, right? He wasn't, he wasn't as skeptical as, as say, Casper uh, Weinberger, let's say, Secretary of Defense, but there, were, there was a, a level of skepticism towards Gorbachev and sort of how this, this new thinking was, you know, really going to play out and whether or not this was all sort of a ruse. And if not a ruse, you know, how much, how much we should uh, really engage with the Soviet Union, given that we don't know, you know much about them, we can't trust them, and so on and so forth. So, it's, it is interesting to me as a, as a first sort of glance at this, this conversation that oftentimes, um, you know, policymakers will, will see the virtues of diplomacy uh, afterwards, after, after there's been something of a, of a failure. This is that uh, owl of Minerva howls at dusk or whatever the line is, right? We sort of, we come to realize, you know, something uh, when, it's, when it's basically too late or it's, it's over. So I think, I think that is kind of an interesting point. But that's also an aside. So that, that's sort of a, a grander claim about the policymaking process and, and whether um, diplomacy, which is often viewed uh, as a sort of dovish uh, uh, kind of phenomena. So if we, if we sort of divide like what, how we can pursue uh, political action and international relations into sort of more hawkish behaviors, which is more you know, use of the military and uh, use of force and things like that, or dovish, which typically is like diplomacy and talking to people. Uh, typically, you know, you find that that uh, there's a, a bias towards hawkish behaviors, and I do have some some work on this that we can talk about at some point on this podcast potentially. But um, so I think that there are reasons why this this sort of hawkishness prevails. Uh, but then once you're out of office and the and the the situation is is over and you've seen the the consequences of it, there's there's a retreat oftentimes to this like dovish mentality and say, oh, maybe in retrospect we should have had more diplomacy or whatever. So I think in terms of the overall uh, thesis that, that Gates provided, uh, I, I agree. I mean, I, I think that in, in general, uh, one of the things that the last 30 years, I would say, has shown us, but also you know, more, more recently, if we think about maybe the Arab Spring and so, you know, how the United States was caught off a little, a little off guard by that, didn't really know how to respond. The way we handled, uh, the Obama administration handled Libya. I think it's another good example of where we sort of got things uh, a little bit wrong, where diplomacy could have made more of a difference. And then more, most recently, the, the Afghanistan, um, not, not just the withdrawal, but, but the lead up to uh, the withdrawal, I think, is an area where a lot of people have, have pointed to and said we needed um, more diplomacy. The specific claim about having diplomats on the ground outside of the embassies, there's a, there's a long running sort of thread in diplomacy scholarship. Um, about the usefulness of, we can call them sort of the, the, the sort of diplomatic elites, right? So I'm talking about like the ambassador, uh, you know, the, the chargé d'affaires, the people who work like in the, in the embassy, who are typically in capital cities, or nearly always in capital cities, um, and often sort of engage in relatively uh, ceremonial and highly symbolic interactions with people who are... Um, relatively high up in the sort of social uh, standing scale, right? So a lot of what, what ambassadors do is they, you know, they host events for uh, maybe business people uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the country. They host events for, you know, NGOs and things like that. But it tends to be 
um, sort of elites talking to other elites. And one of the criticisms that uh, part of the diplomacy literature makes is that that's no way to get understanding of a country, right? I mean, you can have you can have your ambassador sort of interacting with with business elites, but if you're if you're if you want to know sort of what's happening on the ground and what's happening once you get out of the capital city, once you get into some of the more rural areas, uh, maybe some areas that are that are less affluent, for example, uh, you're not going to be picking up necessarily on what's going on in those in those areas if you're just you know dining at the Four Seasons uh, in your capital city. And so there's been a, a trend in the diplomacy literature to make the argument that what embassies and, and ministries of foreign affairs need to do is spend a lot more time and resources cultivating contacts uh, and organiz- you know, organizationally developing networks in places that are not the capital cities. And so, um, and so and some countries do this quite well. One of the arguments that's been made is China does this quite well, right? That, that China, um, in addition to having their ambassadors and their elites in the capital cities, also has diplomatic networks that are in the places where, frankly, uh, the United States typically isn't. Uh, places where you can kind of get get a, a, a feeling for the temperature um, of what's going on in the region. And I think if you look back at some of the, the recent um, episodes that we were just talking about, like the Arab Spring, you know, it's it, it wasn't just Cairo and uh, elites that were determining the fate of Egypt during the Arab Spring, right? There were people all over the country that that were sort of uh, it, on mass organizing and 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 starting to talk about you know what they they saw as their future and they were they were organizing and things like that and and the United States and other countries didn't have a good feel for that arguably because uh, there was a lot of attention paid to to political and business elites but not so much to to the folks on the ground. Uh, in places outside the capital. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting you raise that point. I mean, that that's also a criticism that you frequently hear about intelligence collection um, and the U.S. U.S. intelligence services in particular. That the focus kind of historically has been on uh, U.S. intelligence officers that are functioning out of U.S. embassies, and so as a result, the main people that they want to talk to are foreign and imba- foreign diplomats and government officials, and that when they do that, they miss you know, what's going on at the kind of popular level. And so the kinds of intelligence that we get from our intelligence services, who, you know, are maybe more than diplomats, specifically there to kind of gather the the general sense of what's going on in that country. Our diplomatic corps has this important function of of communicating directly with the government that the intelligence services don't really do as much of. And, and their kind of one job, really, is to find out what's going on in the country. And so to the extent that they focus on the elites, they focus on whoever is in power at the moment and miss these kind of broader trends. That's really a failure of what they're doing. And so there's been this push in uh, kind of intelligence circles for fewer intelligence officers operating under diplomatic cover, uh, right, who are pretending to be diplomats in the places they go, and more people who are kind of out, kind of on their own, um, just uh, trying to gather information that aren't working out of the embassy. Yeah, no, I, I, it's funny how the intelligence um, area and the diplomacy area really kind of overlap uh, in this regard. Now, I, and I will say, uh, there's, a, there's another strand of argument, though, that kind of cuts against this. Um, and you don't hear quite as much now because I think that the the State Department um, has has kind of learned from this. But there was a a sort of strand of theorizing a while ago that that was sort of talked about as like clientelism or localism. The basic idea was that um, if you have too many diplomats sort of out of the capital, like out in these like rural areas, learning learning uh, the language or or the culture, um, investing a lot of time there. One of the dangers of that is that you start to see the world through the eyes of the people that are in that host country. 
Now you might say this is exactly what you want, and this is what we this is what we miss in the Arab Spring. We didn't understand that people in you know uh, living on the Nile, uh, you know, three hours outside of Cairo, like were actually planning uh, uh, an uprising and wanted to change their futures. And if we had more people there, we would have we would have learned that. But but the argument was back in the day that you know these if you if you sort of start adopting the viewpoint uh, of the host country, then what ends up happening is you you lose your your sort of vantage point as being an, an ambassador of the United States. You're there to represent the United States. You're there to understand yes what's going on in the country, but but because you want to report back to the U.S. And so there's always this concern that you know oh if you if you spend too much time there, you get to know these people too well, you're gonna start seeing things through their through their eyes. Right. It's 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 a form of capture, right? Like that we talk about in the, in the U.S. in U.S. politics in terms of like co- uh, the Congress people who are working on some issue are kind of captured by that constituency, and they're no longer representing the American people. They're representing these special interests. And you hear this talked about in terms of diplomacy, where we in at Maine State in Washington can't trust the reporting that's coming out of this this embassy because they've been captured. They're advocating for that country instead of representing U.S. interests in this country. And this is something you don't really hear much of anymore, I don't think, right? But but this is this used to be kind of a, a frequent, say, Republican criticism of yep. um, the almost kind of the, the precursor to the deep state, that here's a, a set of uh, entrenched foreign service officers who don't necessarily have U.S. interests at heart. They're, they're just advocating for the country where they're, where they're living at the time. That's exactly right. And, and I think one reason uh, you don't hear about this too much is that people realize that this is, uh, this is not as big of an issue as, as some of these people might, might uh, have them believe. But also, you know, the advent of, of new technologies also makes it, I think, part of, part of what, what some, you know, uh, diplomats think is that they don't necessarily need to, to spend as much time out in the, in the rural areas because they have access to, to technology that can tell us, you know, what they think, right? So you can monitor, let's say, what's going on in social media, for example, and kind of see what's going on. Or you, you might have access to, like, you know, WhatsApp groups or something like that. So you, you basically have uh, the ability to tap into what's going on without actually having to, to be there. But, but I will say, like, in, in terms of Afghanistan, I mean, the, the Middle East was the area where people said this happens the most because it takes a long time to learn Arabic and it takes a long time to learn, uh, you know, the, the culture, right? And, and what, what are the things that we hear all the time about Afghanistan is we never understood the culture. We never understood sort yeah, of- That's something that Gates actually said during his, his talk with the students. Exactly, right. And so the, the idea is, well, if you go and you learn the culture, then you're going to start thinking about, you know, this, this thing from the, the, the Afghanistan's perspective and not from the United States' perspective. And so, and so I think the, the point of this conversation is that there's always been this uh, tension um, in, in diplomacy, not just in the United States, but elsewhere, to have the right mix of sort of political elites, business elites interacting in capital cities with the right number of, of folks outside of the capitals doing information gathering building relationships uh, with people in more you know, rural communities or, or less affluent communities um, and, and balancing that all out in a, in, a, in a very sort of effective way, an efficient way, so you get a good understanding of, of what's going on. And it doesn't always work. You know? I, I think in, in the Arab Spring example, uh, the, the, it was too heavy on the, on the political elite side. Um, you can make the argument that in, in other cases, maybe we're spending too much attention to what's going on in, in more rural areas. I don't know. But I think that this gets at this this core problem of like what is what is the role of the diplomat uh, in foreign policy and what is the right mix of uh, having diplomats who are going to focus at these these various levels of of society where you don't want to you know necessarily see things from their perspective and 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 become one of them but you also need to understand what's going on on the ground if you're going to have good you know foreign policy decision making. So if you accept the premise of Gates' critique that 
U.S. foreign policy has become more militarized over the over the last, I don't know, 30 years since the end of the Cold War. I guess my, my question would be, why do we think that that's happened? So let me let me throw some ideas out there and we can see what you um, what you make of this. So, I mean, I, I think there are maybe a, a few things going on. I think there is a domestic politics story to be to be told here about what what do you spend money on? What do you put emphasis on that signals your foreign policy strength? And I think there's some sense in which, you know, we don't want to cut the military. So, I mean, we, we have cut the military, I think, as a percentage of GDP, although kind of in, in absolute terms, military spending increases have, have continued to occur. But there's a sense that leaders become more vulnerable to a critique of not being a strong leader um, and not aggressively advocating for U.S. interests abroad to the extent that they reduce these kind of uh, more visible signs of U.S. power and U.S. strength, as opposed to the diplomatic corps and USAID and particularly USIA, the, the kind of public diplomacy arm of U.S. foreign policy, where these were, were organizations that were embattled for years. And um, I, I remember the big debates over what should happen to um, USIA and at the same time, um, the, the Arms Control and Disarmament Agency, which used to be a separate agency, but that was kind of folded into the State Department at the same time under the Clinton administration. And this was part of a deal with Jesse Helms, the Republican senator who held up funding for um, for U.S. foreign policy generally pending the agreement of the administration to push forward with these reforms, what he saw as reforms, which was taking away these kind of independent fiefdoms, as he saw it, these kind of uh, power centers outside the State Department and folding everything under under the U.S. Department of State, which had the effect, I think, of diminishing the influence of of those particular agencies, right? So the people who were part of USA, USIA were folded into the State Department. They didn't lose people, but they did lose influence, right? Because they were no longer this independent agency. And um, I think we've seen kind of a similar eroding of of uh, the USAID in terms of its mission and um, the capacity it brings to to contributing to aid projects abroad. And I wonder how much of this is budgetary politics. Like, where are we going to spend our money? Who are the constituencies for these organizations? The military has very clear domestic constituencies. The uh, State Department does not. Um, the USAID does not. USIA certainly does not. And and uh, But we know, you know, how important the military is to the American people in terms of military bases, in terms of military spending, in terms of the economy. It's not shocking that we would continue to fund the military while diminishing these other areas, thus turning it into a more militarized foreign policy by necessity, because that's where the money is going. I, I think that's all right. Um, and, I, and I do think the money aspect is is really important part of the story. I mean, it's, it's interesting to me, though, because I, I feel like oftentimes there is bipartisan consensus on... Uh, the importance of diplomacy. I mean, at, at least politicians often speak this way, right? So um, Gates, I, I, I think, is you know certainly was a Republican for uh, a lot of his life. Maybe still is. I don't. I don't know how he voted in the last election. But you know, uh, there's. I think there's a sense in which that most people, if you ask them straight up, do you believe in diplomacy? You think diplomacy is important? You, you say yes, yes, of course I do. And yet, then when it comes to funding decisions uh, for like the State Department, let's say, who most people I think objectively would look at the State Department and say it's an underfunded. Uh, agency it certainly was during Trump. Uh, even now, under the, the the Biden budget request, I think would maybe would argue that this is still underfunded. Um, so it's one of these things where everybody kind of agrees it's important, and yet uh, it's it oftentimes it's kind of hard to fund it. I think one of the reasons for that 
is that diplomacy often suffers from a problem of showing its its effectiveness. So, you know, a lot of times when you have uh, budget discussions, people are rightly focused on the dollars and cents. And sometimes diplomatic activities are very tough to to draw a causal arrow between, you know, the, the diplomats that you're paying, you know, this, this conversation we just had in, in a country somewhere like Afghanistan and showing sort of return on that investment. You know, that's very, very difficult. And indeed, if diplomacy is doing its job, you're often not going to see much, right? I mean, you're, if you're gaining an understanding of, of another country's culture and where they're likely to do in, the, in an upcoming election or whatever, and you're writing reports back to D.C. and people are making you know, good judgments based on that information, then ideally uh, your, your work is not going to hit too many radars because that's, what's happening is exactly what's supposed to be happening if diplomacy is being effective. And so I think sometimes showing effectiveness is a real challenge uh, for the State Department. And, and I've talked to a lot of diplomats in, in the course of my research um, where they talk about this as, as being, you know, it's, it sort of harkens back to previous conversations we've had about academics trying to show that they've make, they make impact in the policy world. I think it's often difficult for diplomats in the State Department to show what their impact is uh, because a lot of it's unobservable or you have to really squint your eyes to kind of see like what in any given case what the, the role of diplomacy might have been. The other thing, um, and, and this is, you know, out of a long sort of uh, uh, sort of line of theorizing that comes out of critical theory and, and fe- feminist scholarship, you know, there is this just general sense that that diplomacy is one of these softer kind of uh, tools in the toolbox, you know, um, and, you know, we, we see it you know, all the time in terms of, of group dynamics, whether you go back to the Bay of Pigs or, you know, this group think sort of situations where, you know, it's very difficult to be in a, in a meeting at the Pentagon with uh, uh, people who have 30 or 40 years of military experience and make a, a strong argument for the use of diplomacy. Like this is, this is something that people talk about. They say it's, just, it's just difficult to do because ultimately what you're saying is you're, you're opting for a softer uh, version of power. That's very diffuse and sort of difficult to wrap your hands around what it even is. You know, you say things like, well, I want to, I want to do public diplomacy. I want economic assistance. I want more communication. You know, all of this stuff is it frankly can sound a little fluffy, you know, especially it sounds fluffy compared to, I have a weapon that I can show, you know, I can, I can show you is going to, is going to do something. Or I have these guns that we're going to give to the, you know, to the resistance and, and that's going to have a, a material effect on the situation. So when you're when you're faced up against this hard power alternative where it's very easy to show impact, it's very easy to show how the thing goes boom and, and makes a big explosion uh, versus your sort of more ideational, um, less material oriented strategy. That's that's a tough that's a tough argument to make. And I think a lot of times um, the people who are hearing those arguments are particularly receptive to them, whether because of their background, their prior experience or or whatever. Um, and this is like you know, an area where, where feminists have done a lot of, of writing about how, you know, hawkish viewpoints are, are just privileged, you know, more in these types of environments. Um, and I think ultimately that's kind of what, I don't know if Gates is making a feminist argument, but I think ultimately that's probably what he's talking about as well, which is we need to get out of the mindset that um, diplomacy is soft. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought up um, feminist theory, because I, I think that this is kind of an interesting area where I feel like at least my flavor of IR theory, the kind of IR theory that I do, tends to miss this 
kind of a distinction that that Gates is making about the increasing militarization of of U.S. foreign policy. And maybe this is a cool research agenda that we should should be our next research project. But how do we measure that? How do we study that? It, it seems like something that kind of has kind of fallen through the cracks of traditional approaches to how we think about foreign policy in the world, because there's a kind of branch of IR, the IR literature that maybe foreign policy analysis, foreign policy studies that that looks at, you know, how do countries deal with other countries? And they almost take the foreign policy as the foreign policy. You know, some scholars treat foreign policy as just a thing out there, a black box. And the question is, how do these black boxes relate to each other? And there isn't necessarily much inspection of what's inside that box. Is it predominantly a military story? Is it predominantly a diplomatic story? There's this assumption that countries communicate with each other, each other, countries send signals to each other. And it almost doesn't matter whether those signals are a military threat or a diplomatic demarche or the withdrawal of a diplomat from a country. These are all ways of sending signals. And they're treated almost interchangeably uh, sometimes in this literature. And what Gates is saying here is that that's not right, that that there is some real difference between approaching a problem in international affairs, leading with the diplomats versus leading with the military. And we can kind of see that intuitively, but that's not something that I think makes it into most of our studies in international relations today. I, I completely agree. I mean, I, I think we, we throw these terms around as if they're self-evident uh, what they mean. But if you, if you take a step back, you just think about like, well, if if I had to define foreign policy, you know, I, I had to sort of write a conceptual as like a paragraph about what it what foreign policy means. I mean, that's actually very difficult to do because we, I I, don't, I think that we we sometimes don't don't sort of really look at um, the way that we use our concepts and how they're understood or how they differ from other concepts. So, what is the distinction between foreign policy and something like grand strategy that we also we we also talk a lot about, right? You know, my interpretation of what Gates is is saying is that there needs to be like this sort of uh, gestalt shift where we, we stop thinking about, um, or some people stop thinking about foreign policy in terms of, you know, military hard power first, and then like this sort of softer diplomacy comes in, uh, either afterwards, uh, or like when the, when the, the military stuff doesn't work or, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's a bifurcation, uh, that, that occurs with the idea of foreign policy for some reason. And we've hit on, I think some of the reasons that, that might explain this. But I, I would agree. I think that, you know, we don't really have a great we don't have a great way of thinking about what foreign policy actually is. And maybe this should be our next paper. Maybe we should co-author a piece on this, Jeff. Yeah, no, I'm, I think I think it makes I, I think there's some interesting issues associated with how would you measure the extent to which a foreign policy was militarized? And I, 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 I don't know. I mean, we should we should talk more about this um, uh, after the after the podcast. But but uh, I, I think there is some the kind of interesting empirical question here. Is this just a U.S. phenomenon? Or is right. this something that all countries are seeing now? And so we're just kind of keeping pace with uh, keeping up with the Joneses here in terms of how our our foreign policy is structured. I, I think, you know, putting aside the, the academic theory for a second, I think the real th- question here at the heart of what Gates is saying is what is the best way for the U.S. to posture, to to structure its foreign policy to address future challenges in the world? And I, I'm not sure of the answer to this question, but I, I think it's it's maybe the uh, a more productive way to think about this. So so whatever has happened with Afghanistan has happened, right? But but there is a open question: Is it better for us to be meeting the challenges of the future by emphasizing our military strength? Is it better to be emphasizing our diplomatic strength 
reassuring allies first rather than threatening adversaries first. And if you can't have both of those things together, if if you have to emphasize one over the other, if if you have to present either a more militarized foreign policy or a less militarized foreign policy, which is better. And, and I, I don't for achieving the goals that we see coming up in the future for for dealing with the threats we see coming up in the future. I don't know the answer to that. What, what do you think, Marcus? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's a tough question. I, I think that the answer uh, is we should privilege diplomacy. I mean, I, I just look at the the um, last 30 or 40 years of our militarized foreign policy, the stuff that Gates is talking about and what he's lamenting. And I ask myself, what have we what have we really gotten? That's a, that's a positive out of this militarized foreign policy, right? We just had we just talked about Afghanistan uh, and the problems there. We couldn't we couldn't arm the resistance uh, against the Taliban. That didn't that didn't last too long. That didn't work. Uh, I think most people would, would argue. Are, are we going to go through U.S. foreign policy failings? <laughs> because I, I don't think that that starts thirty years ago. No, we could go way, we could go way back. Right. What if you take the prior thirty years? When, when there when there maybe was a less militarized foreign policy, show me the big wins then. I, I don't I don't think, you know, you just got through talking about how it's hard to know how successful these things have been. Right. No, that's fair. But I mean, presumably Gates's comments reflect an understanding that he has. Yeah. At being a professional in this area, that what we're doing is not the right thing to be doing. Like we, we need to rethink this. And so, you know, that's a theoretical question. That's also an empirical question. But I, I think that his point is that. um you know, we, we could be doing a better a better job with this. Now, I mean, I, I reject the idea that it has to be one or the other. I mean, you, I, I think you set it up as sort of like a devil's advocate type of, of uh, question, which is fine. But I mean, I, you know, to my, from my perspective, I think we just need more um, diplomats in the room when these policies are being discussed and when, when decisions are being made. I mean, one of the frustrating things about Washington, um, and again, I'm not, I'm not a policymaker. I've never worked in, in a policymaking process. But you know, my understanding is that these these things are often very much you know siloed. And yes, there's interaction between the State Department and the Pentagon, but but almost by nature, one of those, depending on the the situation that we're talking about, is gonna is gonna be privileged. Sometimes, as 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 quickly as just the way the thing is framed, you know, is it framed as a military problem or is this framed as a diplomacy problem or whatever? That sort of dictates who who's, who kind of takes over and who's in who's in charge. Uh, or is this an intelligence problem? So, I mean, I think one way of of thinking about how to move forward would be to to, to consider ways that we can kind of restructure foreign policy decision making more broadly, um, and what the decision making groups look like. You know, some of the work that I've done has been been looking at like what are the nature of you know small group decision making. What is the nature of small group decision making in these like military situations, in these diplomacy situations, and and we show. You know, some of the research that it, it quite literally depends how many, uh, you know, hawks you have in the room, as, as you might expect, will determine the, the outcome of, of the decision making, right? If you have more hawks in a room, you're going to tend to have more hawkish behaviors. And so if you know that going in, you know, you might design a, a system where you have, you've guaranteed to have more doves in the room or have more devil advocates in the room or, or something where we can just sort of make sure that both sides of this diplomacy military kind of divide are represented in the decision-making uh, room. And, and so ultimately, that's what I would, would make the argument for. So, so we don't need to rethink sort of like what should foreign policy be more diplomacy-oriented. I think it should, but, but rather we need to think about foreign policy decision-making and how we can make it more efficient uh, and make sure that, that all sides are represented when we're having these, these discussions.
I, I just I feel like that a little naive. It's not only naive. It's like us. Yeah. OK, let's hear from everyone. <laughs> But, but like, like that's not gonna that's gonna solve any any anything. Like, like it's about putting it's about the actual resources and the actual tools that we employ, and like making sure that you call on a diplomat to speak in the National Security Council. And the state, the Secretary of State is there, right? Like, like it's not like that has been bypassed in our foreign policy apparatus. That is still an important job, and mm-hmm. it's I, I don't think anyone would even say that the Secretary of State has diminished influence, right? May have diminished resources. But diminished influence in this in this administration, I, I, I don't think so. Um, and it's just a matter of what are the tools we're going to lead with. And I think for this administration and the last several, the first place to look, the 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 place where we can act uh, on a deadline quickly, efficiently, get things done, has been the military and not the diplomatic corps. And I don't know necessarily. Having more diplomats in the room is the way to change that or building up the resources and emphasizing the tools that it can actually do those things if we need to do them. Right. But I mean, we're, we're also in a field of dream situation. I think if you include more diplomats in the room, you know, the, the, the value that they, they bring to the, the t- to the table, I think, will become more more evident. And that will, in turn, uh, build build more resources. Right. I mean, if you if you start to see the value that diplomats are providing, you're going to be more inclined to fund those those diplomats. And so. I just I just kind of think about it in terms of, of for whatever reason, we've gotten away from the idea that uh, diplomacy should be on equal footing, not just generally speaking in terms of foreign policy, which is the Gates point. But I'm talking about in the, the minutiae of the decision making in the in the room where these decisions be decisions are being made, more diplomats in the room, more listening to the diplomats, not just having the secretary of state there, but more individuals who know about the place that we're talking about and understand the culture of the place that we're talking about and the ramifications of the military actions, I think that would be, that would be valuable. You know, one thing we haven't done yet, Jeff, should we go to some of the callers? Should we go to the voicemails that we have? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, who, who do we have on the line? We have Joe from, uh, well, on line one, we have, uh, yeah. Botetot dorm. Do we have Joe. Well, let me, um, let me take this opportunity to encourage, uh, folks to offer us some comments or questions through SpeakPipe. go to www.speakpipe.com slash cheap talk and uh um ask us a question long time long time first time long time listener first time caller yeah we'll 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 get you on the air um marcus thanks so much for taking the time to to chat today i appreciate it this has been a privilege i'm happy to talk diplomacy whenever you want all right and thanks everyone for listening we'll see you next time see you next time on on cheap talk (laughs) i'm very sore yeah how was the marathon tell me about it so there's a marathon in Boston. It's uh, a quite famous marathon. It's a lovely event. Um, Isn't it usually in the spring? It's usually in the spring. It was canceled or, or rescheduled last year due to COVID. Uh, and so they made it a fall marathon for the first time. Typically, it's held on Monday, Patriots Day, which uh, in Boston is a holiday. It's like it's not a holiday anywhere else, but it's a holiday in Boston. And, you know, they have the Red Sox game at 12. And so the whole thing is kind of like a big celebration and everybody comes out and and watches it. This year was a little bit different. They still held it on Monday, um, which, you know, was weird in the sense that it's not Patriots Day. Now, it happened to be it was a holiday. It was Indigenous Peoples Day. Yeah, exactly. It was a holiday, but that's also a holiday that not everybody sort of participates in, you know, mm-hmm. depending on the business. You know, some some people have it off, some people don't. Um, so it kind of lacked a little of the celebratory feel. Now, as it happens, the Red Sox were playing a, 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 a baseball game that day uh, as well, later in the in the evening. 
because they made it to the playoffs. And so it actually did work out that they were, they were playing, but it was at a different time. So anyway, it was a great event. The Boston Marathon, uh, Jeffrey, if you, if you ever get a chance to run it, I highly recommend uh, you do. It's just like a, it's like a runner's celebration because these people – so for, the, for those of you that don't know, to, to run the Boston Marathon, you have to qualify, meaning you have to run another marathon at a particular time. And it, it's a difficult standard for, for most of us mortals, right? It's a, they, they sort of make it difficult to achieve that. And so when you do finally qualify for the Boston Marathon, it's such an exciting uh, thing to qualify and then to go and actually run it. So un- it's unlike any other marathon in the sense, I mean, maybe the Olympics are kind of like this, but it's, it's very much a celebration of runners because you, you have these people who worked very, really hard to get into it and they got into it. So they're just happy to be there. And so it doesn't really matter how the race goes because they're just happy to be participating, uh, in the event for, for most of them that you can get in other ways too. There's charities and things like that, but for the most part, people have, uh, qualified. The, the thing about it, Jeff, so we're, we're recording this from uh, Williamsburg, Virginia. Williamsburg, Virginia is a pretty flat place. You know, we are in the so- southeastern part of Virginia. We're basically by the ocean. It's, it's pretty flat. In fact, this, this is the first place I've ever lived where you can't really go anywhere and look down on things. Like normally, like in the Boston area, for example, there's all these hills. You go on top of a hill, you kind of look down. You can see the Prudential Building from afar. You know, you can you can see you know you get like a, a scape, like a, a a landscape or a, a vista. Here we don't have that because it's flat. And so, as a consequence, what that means is, as a runner, I never run on hills. I run on flat terrain. Now I can run on hills on my treadmill. I can sort of manufacture hills, but that's not really the same thing because you with the, the 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 hills you really need the pounding on the on the pavement to get your muscles kind of ready for it. So every time I've run Boston, and this is my fourth time, uh, I I just am, am always continuously uh, reminded how hilly Boston is, the city and the course, and how awful it is to run a hilly marathon when you're not used to running hills. So. I got to the top of Heartbreak Hill, and my quads were screaming at me. I was my legs were dead. And then you 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 get to the top of Heartbreak Hill and you pass Boston College, and then you start going down this little sort of downhill into Cleveland Circle, and then you make a left on Beacon Street, and you were going into Boston, right? Sure. And it sounds it sounds great. It's like downhill. Yes, you you just crested Heartbreak Hill. You have a downhill. That downhill is the most painful experience because you've been running hills for 21 miles the last thing you want is a downhill because your every step your quads just scream at you and then it flattens out and it's just a it's a it's a real tough last four miles even though it's flat you can see the sifco sign you see kenmore square you know you're close but those four miles seem to take an eternity uh and it was no different for me on monday so all that being said i had a great time I, I ran my fastest time on that course. So hey, congratulations! That's great. Th- so that's so that's fun. Uh, it was not my fastest time overall, but that usually you know you run a fast time at a flat marathon like Richmond or Newport News. I mean Newport News is it's like pancake flat. Well, I mean that, the famous Newport want. News marathon. The famous Newport <laughs> News. There's the hundreds of runners every year <laughs> fly into this event. Um, so I, I've run much better marathons at those types of places, but this was a this was a a, a fun event, and, and you know you know Jeff, you've spent a lot of time in Boston. Yeah. Boston just every once in a while, there's lots of problems with Boston. You know the the, the weather's kind of garbage, and you know it, it's a it's a small city that has like big city aspirations. It's sort of like New York's. It's always in the shadow of New York. You know, it's not really. It's not really like a world class city, I don't think, although it has kind of like it's more parochial. But every once in a while, 
whether it's because of sports, which is usually the case, or because of the marathon, the city just kind of like comes together in this in this like uh, 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 communitas kind of like anthropological way. And it's just very nice. You know, there's an energy to it. And that was what I experienced uh, uh, on Monday. It was just a really nice uh, weekend to be up in Boston kind of uh, uh, celebrating this. That's great. Well, I'm, yeah. I'm uh, congrats on the on on the personal best on that on that marathon. That's wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So now I got to, I got to recover and uh, get the muscles working again and walk normally. Steps are the hardest going up and down stairways. Very difficult. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, I have the same problem and I don't run marathons, you know? Yeah. Just it's, it's just, well, what you, what you realize is that there are so many muscles involved in just walking up a step, you know, like, because when you're, when you're not sore, you don't notice these muscles being used. It's just, you do it without thinking. But but when your muscles are sore, you realize every single uh, entity that is part of that mechanical process to get you up a, up a stair. And it's there's a lot involved and there's a lot of muscles and it's not easy. Uh, yeah. And so you gain an appreciation for human physiology when you do these things. Well, I appreciate your willingness to, to, to descend into your podcast recording studio to have this. Have it was this not time. easy. I, I walked down the stairs backwards. 